Humility is a virtue. Humility is a kingdom value. Humility is essential to the nature of Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to see this value expressed this morning in Luke chapter 14. So let's look at the first six verses in uh, Luke chapter 14. And I'm reading the 1984 NIV. And the, the ones out here are a little bit newer. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. That's 1984. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. So uh, first we have a kingdom proof in verses 1 through 6. You remember that Jesus had announced that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God was at hand because the king was present. Messiah, the Christ, the promised one, had come. And he had come to preach the good news and to demonstrate his authority. Remember, he performed miracles. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised people from the dead. This was miraculous. And these were signs that he was the real deal, that, that, that he was from God. And that the scripture was true. This was a proof. And so in verses 1 and 2, we have the situation. It's one Sabbath. We don't know where, so that we can't have a map today. When Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. This is an important guy. Prominent. You know, if Luke says that, he's a big deal. Probably pretty wealthy. And uh, Jesus was invited to eat in the house of this prominent leader, and he was being carefully watched. I don't know about you, but would you go to dinner where you knew the purpose was to carefully watch you? Jesus just heads right into this. And um, we don't appreciate, you know, we like to eat, and we like to be invited to dinner, but it was not like the culture of the first century. This was really a big deal. This was about social status. This is about who's important. This is about what is your value to the community. And it's about being invited to this banquet. This is on the Sabbath. So that means that they've probably already gone to Sabbath service at the synagogue. And... Um, this is a well-planned-out meal. These people, the guests have been invited ahead of time. Jesus probably got invited at the synagogue. But, you know, some kind of invitation had to go out earlier, and they had to confirm that they were going to be there because they needed to know how many people they were serving. And um, the food, remember, would have to be prepared the day before. All this work had to be done ahead of time because on the Sabbath, no work. Verse 2, surprise, there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling. The older versions say dropsy, which is a, it's a fluid buildup in the body. Um, and it would be very uncomfortable, probably put on a lot of weight, and it affects a lot of different parts of the body system. Uh, can affect your kidneys and your liver and eventually your heart. Could be caused by cancer, uh, 
could be the liver uh, failing a bit. And so here's a guy in trouble. And he would have been looked down upon physically. He would have been unattractive just because of all the swelling. And there was also an assumption in the first century, you know, this guy, probably some kind of sin has brought this on. So there's kind of these things going on in the background. Now, we don't know um, how this man got there. Was he invited? Well, I bet you he wasn't a guest. Was he brought by the Pharisees to test Jesus? Maybe. Good possibility. We don't know. Um, Did he just wander in off the street? That was possible. Did he come because he knew Jesus was there, so he was hoping for an audience with Jesus? We just don't know. Um, The problem we see is in verses 3 and 4, and you probably already see that coming. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So if you've been following in the Gospel of Luke, you know that this is not the first time Jesus has encountered religious leaders on the Sabbath day. In fact, this is the fourth time in the Gospel of Luke where there's been a confrontation over the Sabbath issue because people are supposed to rest on the Sabbath and not work. And the Jewish leaders, by the way, it's not in the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament scriptures do, do not address healing on the Sabbath at all, and they do not prohibit healing on the Sabbath at all. But the rabbis had developed their own rules to help them, and they had decided that no healing can take place on the Sabbath because we've got to rest. Okay? So that was their deal. And they're trying to find Jesus. That's why they're investigating him right now. That's why they've invited him to dinner. They want to check out his attitude. They want to check out his behavior. Is this something we can report back to Jerusalem or not? And so Jesus is proactive. He comes right to them. If they're not going to confront me, I know what they're thinking. I'm going to bring it up to them. I want to uh, get them involved in the discussion. But they remain silent, verse 4. So Jesus is not going to wait. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. And that's proof of who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the promised one, the Holy One of God. And the kingdom of God is present. And Jesus has just displayed the power of the kingdom. The religious leaders don't respond. They do not want to take on Jesus on this occasion. And by the way, uh, if you go back through the book of Luke, Jesus healed a whole lot of people on the Sabbath day. And by the way, why not? Um, That's when people gather. That's when people rest from work so they can get together uh, around the things of God. And why wouldn't that be a good time? Because who's going to carry somebody who needs to be healed to Jesus in the middle of the week on a work day? So um, there's a value here I want us to focus on. Uh, First, the instruction, verses 5 and 6, and then the value. Verse uh, 5, 
Jesus is speaking. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, just in case that ever happens, will you not immediately pull it out, the child or the, or the ox? And they had nothing to say. You know, kind of maybe a no-brainer, but not to the technical thinkers who have already decided we can't do this. Um, the rabbis had addressed this issue in the past, at least in the case of animals. They had never addressed the issue with children. They concluded that animals should be rescued if they are in peril, even on the Sabbath. So they already had this in their thinking. By the way, not, not all Jewish people thought that in first century Israel. If you are familiar with the Essenes, they were kind of a segregated, separate group outside of uh, Jerusalem, and they had their own little place, and they, 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 they got away from the world. They didn't want to be uh, influenced by the world, and they had their own little... And uh, they said, you can't even rescue an animal on the Sabbath, even in peril. Not only that, if, if an animal is delivering their young on the Sabbath, and they're in difficulty, you can't help them, okay? That's how firm they were on this subject. So... Um, there's a value here, a couple of values to stress here. The first one, saving people on the Sabbath takes precedent over rest. Now, that may not impress you. This was revolutionary in the first century. It brought clarity to this whole issue of the purpose of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, um, and he, Jesus breaks convention in his day. This is a kingdom value. Saving people on the Sabbath takes precedent precedent over rest. Physical healing is the work of God, and God was willing to work on the Sabbath to bring healing to a lot of people. Spiritual healing, spiritual salvation is the work of God, and God is willing to work on the Sabbath to bring salvation to people important principle. This is earth-shaking to the first century culture. Second principle, as a reminder, the Sabbath was made for people. This is something Jesus taught. God designed the Sabbath so people could rest. And, you know, we can get into all kinds of debates. Are we supposed to keep the Sabbath or not? What are we supposed to do? I'll tell you what. God intends his people to rest. You got a whole lot of freedom on what that looks like. He didn't say be lazy, but to rest, because you need rest. Human beings have a terrible time with that. Finding rest, physical rest, spiritual rest. What do you do so that you have physical rest? What do you do so you get recentered spiritually? Those are kingdom values. The Sabbath was designed into creation from the beginning. In uh, Mark 2.27, Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And this was a breath of fresh air to his legalistic, rule-keeping, first-century Jewish religious leaders. So we're, we move now to verses 7 through 14, and we see uh, kingdom principles. We, we, we had this kingdom proof of this miracle in verses 1 through 6. 
And now we're going to talk about kingdom principles and more kingdom values. And I'm using that really synonymously. Verse 7, the situation. When he, that is Jesus, noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So, again, just to remind us, we don't appreciate the culture of the first century and how important having these meals were and how significant it was to be invited. I mean, you, you could feel good about yourself if you're invited. You're important if you're invited. You're in. You're a pillar in the community. The seating arrangements were very important, and they were established by a kind of pecking order. Now, in this case, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor, there was a scramble for the places where guests would sit that were places of honor. So, think about this. In the first century, there was primarily like, okay, here's an illustration, a U-shaped table, okay? Big. It's going to host a lot of people. Now, the host sat right here. And then how people were arranged around him suggested how important they were. The most important person sat on his left. The second most important person sat on his right. The third most important person sat on his left. The fourth, you see it just like this, all the way down. And so people are coming to the table and they're trying to find a spot and they didn't do name tag, name cards, you know, back then. And I'm not sure how, this, how they're sort of scrambling and they know that the one in charge of saying who gets to set where is, is the host. And so um, in verses 8 through 10, we have this case study, and it's really a parable or an example. And, and Jesus just offers this, and he says in verse 8, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, so this is not the occasion of the Sabbath, but this is a wedding feast to a wedding reception. Do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. So um, this, Jesus is going to give just some really practical advice about dinner parties and wedding uh, receptions and uh, just, you know, trying to help these guys out a little bit. And, you know, this seating arrangement, this U-shaped, remember these are low tables just like the Last Supper and, and the people are reclining on uh, couches and leaning in, and uh, but the host, he's the one who finally decides where people get to sit. And so Jesus is addressing their method of finding seats, you know, and it's like, gee, if I sit here, you know, I'll at least get to sit by these important people. Um, I've never experienced anything quite like this before, but Something just a little bit similar, not, not really this important. But in the summertime, Sue and I uh, like to ride with the Harley Owners Group. And so on a Wednesday nights, we go for the ride with a group. And this is just a way for our, to get to know people in the community, people that maybe not like me. And uh, I, I think I'm the only pastor in the group. Um, but so after the ride, which is the most fun part, then we go uh, to a restaurant to eat together. And um, so what we find out is 
There are certain people who always sit together, and there are certain people that are more important than other people, and there are certain people that are less valuable. And so it's always kind of awkward because people just kind of run to their, a seat, and once this, if there's a table for four or a table for eight, it just, that's how it ends up, and you just kind of end up sitting wherever. It's kind of a bit of like the scramble going on here. I don't know if you've ever account, encountered uh, that kind of thing or not. Um, Jesus is also giving uh, some spiritual instruction as well. He goes on in verse 9. If so, the, in case you come in and, and he says, don't, don't grab the most important seats. Because if you do, if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. So if people scramble for the best seats, they're in danger of being totally embarrassed in front of the whole crew. Because let's say there, uh, on this occasion, there's a Pharisee that's a little bit older, I can identify there, and maybe he's walking in the room a little bit slower, maybe he arrives just a little bit late, and he gets in and everybody's seated. The host sees who this is, and he says, I'm sorry, you're going to have to move uh, this this is for this man right here. And so the more important guest gets to sit there, and the other person uh, is embarrassed in front of the group. And so Jesus is giving them a little heads up about this. This doesn't have to be this way, he's saying. Um, and this would be very shameful. It's a very strong shame-based culture in the first century in the Jewish community. Verse 10. He says, but when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all other guests. So Jesus' advice is take the lowest place. Then if there's any reason the host wants to bring you up, if you go to the lowest, you can only move up. You don't have to move down. Just practical advice about eating meals with, each, uh, with a group. Take the seat of least importance. And now he gives the instruction in verses 11 through 14. Um, and this is, more importantly, about the spiritual life. Look at verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the kingdom principle. This is how it will be at the judgment. This is how God is going to evaluate those who call themselves followers of Christ. It's not the only thing. This is an eternal perspective. It's a kingdom value. This is upside down to the values of the world. Kingdom values. You know, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. All the blessed is the blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Values turned upside down from the way the world views these things. Humility is a kingdom value that is upside down to our world. A humble follower of Christ will be acknowledged by God at the judgment. So first value is God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the hum humble. 
the great Henri Nguyen wrote in the New Oxford Review. I love this. Everything in, in me wants to move upward. It's my natural propensity. Everything in me wants to move upward. Downward mobility with Jesus goes radically against my inclinations, against the advice of the world surrounding me, and against the culture of which I am a part. Humility is not optional for a follower of Christ. Humility is essential. The New Testament um, abounds with passages on humility, and so does the Old Testament. A um, couple reminders here. First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. And Peter writes, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to elders. It, sometimes, I, you know, when I, I have been young and now I'm old. And when I was younger, I was pushing more, wanting to assert myself more. And now that I'm old, I don't feel the need to do that as much. You who are younger, submit yourself to the elders, all of you. So that's all of us here. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Kingdom principle, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. God's mighty hand, humble yourselves. You know, humility is about having a, an, a, the appropriate view of self. You were created in the image of God. You are an awesome person because God created you that way. With all kinds of talents and abilities. Humility is about not having too high of a view and not having too low of a view. Humility is not about having a bad self-image or low self-esteem or low self-worth. That's a total mistake to think, I don't feel worthy. Well... You are, if you're a follower of Christ, you are extremely valuable. You have tremendous worth as a child of God, uh, who, a citizen of heaven, who, who has an inheritance laid up for you, who has a Holy Spirit in you. It's not, to, not too low and not too high. Um, Ephesians 4.2. The Apostle Paul writes, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. We have to put up with each other sometimes because there are some rough edges. I've noticed that on a couple of you. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17, Old Testament, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Humility. is a kingdom value. How do you relate to your wife, husbands? Are you humble when you talk with them? Do you boss people around in your family? How do you relate to coworkers? How do you relate to your parents? How do you relate to people who work for you? Can you be humble as a follower of Christ. Going on to verse chap uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus continues, and he said this to this host. He's just been talking to the whole room about where to, where to, where to seat, where to be seated. And now he talks to the host. 
This is risky now. He's gonna, is he going to offend his host, who, the one who invited him to this meal? He says, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. So this is a parable. It's instruction as well, and there's a spiritual principle. He's saying, friends, don't stay in the Christian bubble. Don't invite people just like you to everything. Don't just hang out with people just like you, people that are important to you. He says in verse, um, he, he goes on to say, if you do, if you do invite the, those friends and your family and those people that you like, they may invite you back so you will be repaid. Don't get caught up in a game of, you know, I've got to invite them because they invited me and now, you know, we've got, this is the appropriate social way to do it. Um, he's saying, invite people who can't repay you. Verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. You see, this is, a, this is about life in the kingdom. This is about living under the influence, the influence of God. And you will be blessed. Although you, they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He's talking about last days. He's talking about your final time before God. And you're going to get to know about your life. And for, for a follower of Christ, it's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. And then, uh, this is about doing good to those who cannot repay it. It's not just about dinners. Although it is good to invite people to dinner at your place for people who can't repay it. This is about doing good in many areas of life to people that can't be, repay it. This is about being generous. This is about being humble. This is about serving people that are different than you. Because that's a kingdom principle, and that's what honors Jesus. The second value, God's plan for his people God, God's plan is for people to care about the under-resourced, the undervalued people in our world. You know, this is one of the reasons why we do growth group outreaches, because we just want to push ourselves outside of our comfort zone and serve our community. And these are just, what we do are just baby steps, and I would just love for us to keep moving toward people who can't pay us back. Because this is the kingdom value. This is what honors Jesus. Um, this is why we uh, support clean water to children in Africa when we do Team World Vision. Um, this is why I sponsor uh, children in other countries because this is just the way they can't pay me back. Now, this has been God's intention uh, for his people from the Old Testament through the New Testament. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 10 uh, gives us an example here. And this is to the nation of Israel. He says, do, do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners. I am the Lord your God. This was part of 
God's welfare plan to help the poor. God's people were not to be stingy at harvest time. They were to intentionally miss some of the harvest so there could be people come behind. That's, a, that's the story of Ruth, you know. People come behind and find food. And it's not just for the vineyards. You'll find it in other passages in the Old Testament as well. It's just an example. Psalm 82.3 says, Defend the weak and the father, fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Because they can't do anything in return. Proverbs 14.31 Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. When you are kind to people who are needy, when you go to the community table and after you help serve the meal, you sit down at the table and find out who is sitting there and what their needs may be and just what life is like. That's a small, small step. Verse uh, Proverbs uh, 19.17 Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Proverbs 22.9 The generous themselves will be blessed for they share their food with the poor. Are you able to list how currently you're helping with people who can't repay you? This is a kingdom value. Third uh, value to mention here, God's kingdom's offer is to all people. Just a final reminder. I know you know that. God cares about all the people in the world. He cares about the under-resourced, the underprivileged, the undervalued, he cares about all of them. God's plan is for his people to reach out to all people. 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And, you know, we're going to celebrate communion this morning, and we're going to remember what Jesus did for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. He is the righteous I am the unrighteous. All of us are the unrighteous that he stood in for. That's for all people, the under-resourced, the undervalued. It's for all people. It's for the rich and the famous and the poor and the homeless. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, for all people, for us and for all people. The death penalty, the sin penalty has been paid for all people. It's not just for we who are special, it is for all people. Our job is to represent Jesus Christ well and to do good to those who cannot return anything. And that's going to take humility. Today we're going to celebrate communion. 
because Jesus died for all. He died for us. We celebrate communion because on the night before Jesus' death, he sat down intentionally with his disciples to be with them one last time as a group. And he told them about his death and he uh, gave them something to practice, something to remember. And he gave them bread and he said that this is about his body. And he gave them uh, a cup of wine and this was about his blood that would be shed. And we celebrate communion because the Apostle Paul gave these instructions to the church which have lived down through uh, centuries that we as a church need to come back and focus on what God has done for us, that he sent his son Jesus, that he died on the cross and he paid the penalty for our sins. And by the way, if there's any person here who has never placed their faith in Christ, all you need to do is to believe what God said about his son, to trust Jesus, to understand that Jesus paid for all of your sin, to understand it's not about doing good works because none of us are good enough. Jesus did the work. Our job is to trust him, to put our faith in him, to believe in him. So the scripture says that when we take this time, we should examine our lives. We need to, are we okay with God? Is there anything in our life that God would point out as sin that we need to confess? And so that's on you. You need to handle your life. You need to examine your life. And we're going to thank God for the bread that represents his body. Uh, It was given for us. We're going to thank God for the cup that represents his blood that was shed for us, that paid for our sin. And um, when you're ready, we're going to have people uh, come up to the front and prepare, and they can do that when... uh, when I pray. And then when you're ready, uh, our custom at the bridge is to come forward to one of the stations. And uh, if your heart is right with God, you can take the bread and the cup and just go back to your chair. And you can take it whenever uh, you're ready. You don't have to wait for everyone else. But when you're ready, let's uh, bow in prayer. So just uh, take a moment of silence and Reflect. Ask God if there's anything that he uh, wants to show you, any sin that he wants to point out. And just take time to confess your sin to him. It's so amazing that God has given us a provision in his word that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we can do that now. We can confess. And we can ask for his forgiveness. And we can come away knowing his word is true, that he forgives, his promise is true and that we are forgiven. Thank you, God, for the bread that represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was nailed to the cross. Thank you for the cup 
It represents the blood of Jesus shed for us on our behalf. We deserve the death as a consequence for our own sin, and yet Jesus took our death on himself. He was our substitute. Thank you. We acknowledge that we do not deserve your love. We do not deserve grace or mercy. We do not deserve forgiveness. And we thank you. And may we live our lives in response to your great love and work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.